everybody. Thank you so much for joining me today for another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. Today, we have a special guest on the show who's going to speak with us about autism and some of its nutritional implications. All of us are receiving diet orders across the country for a variety of reasons, and dietary restrictions include far more than just food allergy diagnoses. So I thought it would be interesting to have someone on to speak specifically to how autism affects the dietary needs of some of our students. All right, let's jump right in. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. Britton, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So I was excited that you reached out to me because I'm really interested in addressing some of the confusion there is around how we accommodate students that need special diets. And when it comes to autism, it's really unclear to most people, I think, how autism could have any effect on diet. So I'm really glad that you're here. Me too. I'm so excited to talk about this. So before we jump into kind of the nuts and bolts of what you do now and what we all want to know about how to best serve these students, can you tell me how did you end up in nutrition and dietetics in the first place? I have always been interested in nutrition since I was little. I've had a lot of food sensitivities. I've been gluten-free for about 20 years. I always like to say before it was cool, (laughs) Uh, but uh, I've been dairy-free for a lot of those years too and just really struggled with a lot of foods that have just not agreed with me very well. And so I've always really had to be conscious about what I'm putting in my body and it's just made me be so interested in what's in my food. You know, as a six-year-old reading a Cheez-Its label, trying to figure out, you know, is there dairy or gluten in this? And can I have this? But also just, uh, you know, trying to figure out what should be in my body and what should not be. Uh, So that's the very basis. But I also have a brother on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum. And so combining both of those has been really special to me. And I think because he was on the spectrum, a lot of stuff got picked up for me as well. Like a a lot of, you know, medical focus was put on him and we had some similar GI struggles and, you know, some similar other things too that we were able to pick up on because we were so focused on him. And so I think that also kind of helped me figure out my health and why food is so important for, you know, your diet and your brain and your whole body. Absolutely. That's really interesting. I think there are a lot of people, like younger people who are trying to figure out what they want to do career wise. And sometimes we only think about the experience that we get on the job, or the things that we learn in a university setting. But a lot of times, Mm -hmm. a major life experience is kind of putting you in the perfect position to offer a service or basically something for the community that only you are going to be qualified to do. You're uniquely qualified for this position, for sure. Exactly. It makes it so special. And I think I can relate to my clients so much better from not just a 
professional level, but a personal level, because I haven't been there as a parent, but I've been there as a sibling. And it just makes it so much more unique when you can make that personal connection with the, with the parent. That makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned your brother's on the spectrum. Can you clarify what that term means? Definitely. So the autism spectrum disorder is what it's called. Some people just say autism or refer to it as ASD. And if you're in the field, most people will just stay on the spectrum and everyone <laughs> knows just about what you mean. So over the past oh, 20, 30 years, the rates of autism has really been climbing. And so the odds that you know somebody that are actually on the spectrum are pretty likely or that you have a family member that's on the spectrum. But what's autism actually is, for those of you who don't know, it's um, really a, a, a broad range of conditions. There's not just one diagnosis. Before 2013, there were all these different diagnoses, whether it was autism or autistic disorders, what they used to call it, Asperger syndrome and Rett disorder, all these other things. And they lumped them into one big category in 2013 and called it autism spectrum disorder. But generally, Everybody that's under that spectrum has varying um, levels of maybe difficulties with social skills, repetitive behaviors, trouble with communication, whether that's verbal or nonverbal, and actually being able to communicate or maybe, you know, receptive instruction as well. And a lot of kids I see also have a diagnosis of ADHD. They can also have something that's called sensory processing disorder, which I'll definitely hit on that later when we get to restrictive diets. But essentially, just all their senses are just very heightened and very severe. So maybe a noise that doesn't bother you might be very, very loud to somebody that's on the spectrum or maybe something that feels good, like touching your skin or giving a pat on the back might feel good to you. But to somebody on the spectrum, it might be painful or it might be startling. So um, they, they interpret senses differently is what I'm trying to say. So I hope that explains it a little bit. Yes, that absolutely does. But then it opens a lot more questions, right? So when Mm -hmm. it comes to there being more people getting diagnosed, you said the rates of this diagnosis seems to be going up. How do you account for that? How do you explain that? I know there are lots of different theories out there, but I think we could Mm -hmm. also assume that as we become more aware of a disorder, it's going to be diagnosed more frequently. What do you think the explanation is? Absolutely. And this is can be controversial. But what I believe is that yes, we're definitely diagnosing it more. The criteria has definitely become more well-rounded. We know what to look for with autism. Um, A lot of times it's easier to recognize because it's more common, but the rates are increasing so quickly that we have to account for something else. Just a a change and being able to recognize autism wouldn't cause the complete spike that it has. And so it makes me think that there has to be something more there. We don't know what causes autism, whether it's an underlying genetic disorder that maybe has environmental triggers or there are more environmental triggers and, you know, our world is just polluted with more toxins and toxins by the day. So um, there really is so many possibilities, but I really think that there's more than just a change in diagnosis or more people being diagnosed on the spectrum. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense as well. It'll be interesting to see how long it will be before it becomes clear what the cause is, or if that's even something Mm -hmm. we'll see in our lifetime. Yes, I hope it is. 
Yeah. I, I hope that we're able to figure it out. Um, I'll happily be out of the job for that. These kids are so uniquely them, and a lot of people take so much pride in autism. And I think that's so wonderful. And the autism community is just, it's so encouraging to see people just take so much pride in the word autism and the diagnosis. But in that, you know, there are unique struggles that individuals with autism have. And it would be so great to be able to let them see the world clearly. Yeah, with a community building around it, do you feel like there is a possibility that maybe the way we're framing it as a disorder isn't always going to be something that the community itself agrees with? Are some people feeling that some of these traits in certain settings could serve them? Or what is the general sense about that? Yeah, you know, different population or different groups view it differently. There are some people that are like, let's find a cure, let's find a cure, we have to do everything. And some are like, well, no, I don't want to be fixed. I like myself the way I am. I have these unique strengths and they help me in my day to day or they help me be extremely skilled in one certain area. Um, I was actually just reading an article about a police officer who was on the spectrum and he was saying he's so grateful that he has it because it gives him such attention to detail and that he's able to do his job so much better because he's able to see what other people don't. But again, he's on the higher end of the spectrum. There are kids that are on the way opposite side of the spectrum that are very severe. And, you know, we have to take into account the full spectrum and not just those who are high functioning. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So when it comes to GI distress, you said that your brother had symptoms and you did as well. So Mm -hmm. do you see that a lot in families that the GI symptoms tend to run throughout the family, whether or not everyone has the same diagnosis? Right. It's so interesting. There's actually this really great study. I'll have to send it to you um, if I can find it. But it was comparing individuals with autism. It was looking at their siblings and then just the typical population. And it was looking at GI disorders and symptoms. And those with autism had most commonly very severe GI issues. Most commonly constipation is the issue that most struggle with. And then the typical population was a very low percentage, but then you could see that siblings were somewhere in the middle. And so it shows that something has to run in families. That doesn't mean that it all the time does, but a lot of times I'll be on a consult with a client and they'll be telling me about their child and I'll say, oh, but I actually have another child who doesn't have autism, but they have some similar challenges. So it's really interesting to see that. Some people will say it's environment because they're living in the same household, exposed to the same foods and all these different things, but also coming down to like a gut biome perspective and how the balance of bacteria is most commonly similar in well, people who have shared a womb or gone through the same womb, have the same bacteria, families share bacteria. And so it really can come down to a gut biome how similar those are in families. It's really interesting. That is fascinating. The concept that yes, you and your siblings, you shared a womb. You forget you forget about that stuff. But <laughs> yes, that it really is the beginning of you building up your biome is where did you start out? Then what did your mother feed you? And all of that would pretty much be similar yeah. to what your siblings were exposed to. So that makes a lot of sense. I always forget that not everybody is a dietitian or obsessed with nutrition. So I guess we should <laughs> yeah. define what what do we mean when we say GI issues and what do we mean by your microbiome, basically. Thank you. I get too far ahead of myself <laughs> too often. Uh-huh. 
So with GI issues, so GI standing for gastrointestinal, that can range from constipation to diarrhea to cramping to even as severe as like IBS, irritable syndrome. It could be bloating, food sensitivities. I mean, you name it, just any problem that you can have with your GI, just GI issues in general is pretty broad. Uh, but then microbiome, what your microbiome is, essentially all of the bacteria and yeast and organisms that live inside of your gut. So everybody, it's almost like your own little fingerprint is what they're comparing it to. So you have your own makeup of uh, bacteria and yeast that live in your gut. And a lot of those are really helpful and you absolutely need a lot of them. They help you digest your food. They help keep your gut healthy. They essentially just make your uh, gut cells nourished and, and just help you thrive there, help prevent any constipation or diarrhea or any GI issues. But oftentimes if we get that balance mixed up and, and those bacteria and that yeast gets off balance, keep in mind that you have trillions and trillions of bacteria and organisms that live in your gut. So whenever you have this imbalance, it can cause some major issues and can cause chronic constipation, chronic diarrhea, you know, bloating because of the gas that they're putting off. And it actually can cause neurological disorders as well uh, because that gas that's toxic or those toxins that are being produced by the bad bacteria can actually go from the gut and can actually um, have an impact on the brain, on development and behavior and mood. It's a really fascinating field. Hmm. And so are there any particular conditions that you can think of where that link has already been identified as far as the neurological mm -hmm. disorders go? Yeah, so autism is definitely one that they've really been researching. Another one is schizophrenia that they've really linked to the gut biome. And then they're also looking at the gut biome in Alzheimer's and depression as well. Depression is a big one. So they're able to see a big difference in the gut makeup in individuals who experience depression. Now, based on my understanding, and I here's my disclaimer, I don't work in clinical at this time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So maybe, maybe I'm not so uh, heavy on the research as maybe I ought to be. But my understanding was that in the United States, there's been a major decline in the diversity that we see in the microbiome. And that's related to how our diet has changed as a culture, um, how food has been, the processing has changed, and maybe the fact that we don't eat as much food directly purchased from a farmer anymore, that has maybe mm -hmm. a little bit of dirt on it that helps keep your gut diverse. Is that true? And if so, what are we supposed to do in the United States if we want our gut to be populated with helpful bacteria that is diverse? You are so spot on. That's huge. So the diversity in the foods that you eat is going to directly impact your gut biome. Fiber is one thing that's especially needed. Another word for fiber is prebiotics. So prebiotics are what feeds probiotics, the gut or your bacteria in your gut and help them thrive. And whenever we don't have fiber in our diet, which, I mean, we all know that the standard American diet is extremely lacking in fiber, you're not going to feed those good bacteria. I love that you touched on food production and our hygiene standards, because we didn't always have the hygiene standards that we do now. And, you know, of course, always washing our food and, you know, having that completely free of any debris. There's 
really interesting articles that will focus on why B12 is plummeting because B12 can be made by bacteria in the soil. And because of our, you know, our hygiene standards, we have lower B12 or vegans and, you know, vegetarians can have lower B12, whereas they might not have in the past. That's just a little tangent, but interesting. But yeah, completely. So our diet as a whole and just the standard American diet is really lacking in fiber, really lacking in fruits and vegetables. The best thing that we can do is try to focus on organic because it's not um, sprayed with a bunch of pesticides. Pesticides don't only kill the bacteria and the bugs on the food, but they can also kill the bacteria and the bugs inside your gut. So um, focusing on organic and non-GMO if you can, and then focusing on a wide variety of foods. The more colors, the better, and the more plant-based, the better. Of course, you know, using animal protein is fine as well, but fiber and fruits and veggies are just going to grow your bacteria that much more. Um, If you're worried about your intake of fiber, you can always take a fiber supplement. It's way better to eat it, but you could always supplement a little bit. Or I always recommend that every American should take a probiotic just to replenish that good bacteria in the gut when we're not getting it from the diet. Hmm. And what do you do if maybe you haven't had fiber in a while? Mm-hmm. And you want to start introducing it without a lot of stomach upset. How do you start off slow? Okay. You got to start slow. Yeah. Cause if you start all at once or let's say you just, I mean, one time when I was little, I ate three fiber one bars, not knowing they're fiber one bars. I thought they were just granola bars mm. and it was the worst pain I've ever <laughs> experienced was not good. And so I was like, okay, laid off of these. But I've also had, clients who will just you know start or parents even not just their kids will change their lifestyle and they'll be very very high fiber and they'll start to have you know some diarrhea or some GI pain because that bacteria that's in their gut if they're not used to eating that much fiber the bacteria in their gut is going to eat it and it's going to ferment it and turn it into gas and so that can cause a lot of bloating and GI pain so I would just say start off slow. You don't have to, you know, completely go plant-based overnight. Start adding in one or two new servings of fruits or veggies and work on it throughout the week and just gradually increase fiber in your diet. I think most women should have 26 grams of fiber per day and most men, I believe it's 35, uh, somewhere around then. So if you don't know how much fiber you're getting, you can track and gradually just work your way up. You don't have to do it at once. Yeah. Do you feel like if you're having one or two high fiber foods per meal, that's unlikely to cause upset or it really depends on the person you start at one a day? It totally depends on the person. Yeah, it totally depends on the person. If you can handle it, then add in more. But let's say that you haven't eaten fiber or really eaten a vegetable in a really long time. And that's a lot of Americans, you know, if you can handle it, then continue to add them in. But let's say that your gut biome has gotten way off and now you only have these um, harmful bacteria in your gut that just live on sugar and carbs. And I don't think carbs are a bad thing, but simple carbs are not the greatest. But let's say that you've just built up this huge uh, biome of these harmful bacteria and they don't know how to break down fiber. Well, yeah, you're going to have an issue. You need to slowly add it in, those bad bacteria are going to die off, the good bacteria are going to be fed, and they're going to continue to grow. So it's just a process in finding out what works for your body. 
Hmm. That makes sense. I went on a, this was years ago, I went on a silent retreat. It was a meditation retreat. And part Mm. of the experience was that you have to eat a vegetarian diet while you're there, but it wasn't closed off to people who aren't vegetarians during the year. So there were a lot of people there who hadn't had such a high fiber diet in years, if ever. And with it being a silent retreat, it was hysterical. Maybe I need to grow up, (laughs) but it was just hilarious how gassy everybody was. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people were really, really having a hard time. You can't forget that once you've been exposed. That's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. You're going to be gassy for a little bit, but just remember that that doesn't mean you should stop. That's just your bacteria transitioning and it's not going to be like that forever. Your bacteria is going to transition and your body's going to be able to you know, take more fiber. And that's what you need to prevent a lot of GI disease or GI disorders is a high fiber diet. So just give your body a little bit of time. And I tell that to parents that I work with too, you know, they're worried about their child being constipated and um, about all these other issues. And we introduce, you know, gradually build in fiber and they're having some GI issues and they want to stop. Um, or we're adding in more probiotics and they have these GI issues. And I always remind them it's not forever. There's a transition period and a little die-off period and it's going to get better and it's going to be better than it was. You just have to hold through and we hold through and the GI issues taper off and we're better off than we started. There's just sometimes that little bit of a transition period. I could see this being really important when it comes to children if they suddenly are feeling bad after every meal because we went in a little too hard with the changes, Mm -hmm. that's going to discourage them from wanting to try new things. So yes, definitely want to introduce things slowly. What types of changes do you notice when your clients change their diet? GI is huge. So normalizing those, having typical bowel movements each day, And then also a lot of times, I mean, if you think in a child, especially a child who couldn't communicate, they're nonverbal on the spectrum and they can't communicate, they're having such pain. Of course, they're going to act out behaviorally. Of course, they're going to be in a bad mood if they're always experiencing pain and always constipated. And so if we can fix that and get them regular, a lot of times mood and behavior and focus will all fall into line in sleep issues too. I see a huge connection between sleep and GI. And so if we can fix GI problems and, you know, take some of that load off, they will feel so much better and can actually participate in school or be able to focus just because they're feeling better. So that's just one quick and easy thing that I see. But a lot of times I see, you know, even better results and, you know, just functioning and behaving so much better than before. So typically, what are people coming to you with? Is the main concern usually stomach upset or maybe extreme picky eating? What's the most common food-related concern you see? Those are my top two. I would say my most common is picky eating. And then a lot of times with the kids who are picky eaters, they also have GI issues. So, but I mean, it's normal. I mean, to be concerned about your child only eating five to 10 foods, you should be concerned, you know, not getting, we're talking about lack of diversity. I mean, if they're only eating five to 10 foods for years, there's of course going to be some imbalance of bacteria or some nutrient deficiencies or um, just all these other things that are going to fall into that. And so with food selectivity, I'm working with parents 
help build in new foods into the diet that can be accepted and also transitioning those foods that they're currently eating that just might not be the best version of that food. Like maybe they're living off ego waffles. Well, mm. waffles aren't the best thing to be living off in general, but even in the short term, if we can make just one better choice and not our best yet, like maybe transitioning to a better waffle that has higher fiber, that's whole grain, that has uh, better ingredients in it. That's one step in the right direction. It doesn't have to all be overnight. So maybe our ideal goal for that child would be to eat some oatmeal in the morning or to eat a homemade waffle that has flax and, you know, egg and all these other great ingredients for them. But that's not just going to be from ego to homemade organic plant-based waffle, (laughs) you know, overnight. We have to make these small changes. I work with parents to build in more foods that are more accepted into their child's diet so that they can feel more comfortable with their child getting the right nutrients they need and supporting their daily calorie and protein needs. So working on expanding the diet is one of the most common things that I'm doing with my clients. What is sensory processing disorder? I know how picky eating is expressed in this population is completely different from what might come to mind with kids that are not on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So sensory processing disorder is really interpreting your senses in a different way. The way that our body transmits our senses to our brain, there's some disruption there. So like I was saying earlier, when it could be painful, when you get a pat on the back or a noise might be way too loud. Um, my brother actually always had to wear either noise canceling headphones or these little earplugs because outside noises were just way, way too loud for him. And it was really overwhelming and hurt his ears. There's a lot of different ways, maybe a tag on the shirt or the little stitching in the socks. A lot of kids will have to wear their socks inside out because they can't handle the little stitching in their socks or have to buy a certain type. But when you think about eating, it's one of the most sensory rich experiences that you can experience. So you smell the food, you taste it, you feel the texture, you hear the crunch of the food, you feel the temperature, then you see it. There are all these different sensory impacts here or sensory experiences here. And it can be so overwhelming for a child who does have sensory processing disorder. And so a lot of times they don't want to try new foods. They are so overwhelmed and they will stick to the foods that they know best. And a lot of times they'll stick to foods that are packaged or processed or from a fast food restaurant because they are so consistent. They're going to have the same taste, the same smell, the same texture every single time. And they they get stuck on these foods because they like that they know what's coming. And it's not a surprise and it's not overwhelming. So a lot of times that's why kids will get stuck on that and how sensory processing can play into that in a picky diet. Have you seen many cases of malnutrition related to this extreme picky eating? Is that a possible outcome? It is. And it can, my, I haven't had clients that are diagnosed malnourished. They can be getting there, but you know, we can kind of stop it and reverse what's going on. There are tons of research articles that show that kids with autism will end up malnourished or end up with severe nutrient deficiencies or end up with scurvy. Um, Mm -hmm. Actually, there's a lot of studies that show kids with autism will end up with scurvy in the hospital and doctors can't figure out what's going on because when do we see scurvy anymore? And it's because they're so selective in their diet and just not eating foods with nutrients in them. And so I do have a lot of kids that will be below the fifth percentile. So 
but technically diagnosing protein, calorie, malnutrition, whether they do have that or not varies, but they can be very, very small whenever they're not getting the right foods or they're not eating at all. You mentioned that one of the recommendations for your clients is to focus on an organic low processed diet when you have client or I don't know that clients that maybe are lower income if they even would have access to consulting with a dietitian but what would you recommend for a family that's only going to have access to conventional produce and mm-hmm. packaged foods what is the optimal diet for someone who has those kind of restrictions Yeah, it makes it so hard because organic produce is going to be a little bit more expensive because they can't process as many, you know, fruits and veggies if you don't have those pesticides to kill off the bugs. The best advice that I can give would be go online and look up the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. There's an organization called the EWG, and every year they put out the Dirty Dozen, the Clean 15, and what those are is essentially the 12 dirtiest foods in terms of pesticides and I believe it's mostly pesticides, but which foods you shouldn't be eating and then actually which ones you can maybe skimp on and buy just the traditional non-organic produce. And so, for example, this year, and I think the past few years, strawberries have been the dirtiest fruit with the most pesticides on them. Spinach and kale are nuts, nectarines, apples, grapes. Those are all within the top 12. And then But when you're thinking about the Clean 15 and ones that you actually could skimp on, things like avocados and sweet peas and onions, asparagus, cabbage, cauliflower, things like that. Um, So I would recommend them to go online. It's completely free. They can get downloads to see the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen. But if they do have to buy something that they know is on the top list of Dirty Dozens, you can get one of those soaps one of the organic veggie soaps that really don't cost very much and last you a long time that help remove the pesticide residue or help remove those extra waxes or other things that are on the fruit and just wash it really well. Okay, great. Those are really good tips. Now, when it comes to what types of special diet accommodations a child with autism might need in the public school setting, what might we expect? What do you think we need to know as people working inside schools about accommodating a child who maybe comes in with a vague diet order that maybe says something like, don't give Timmy anything red? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. So, well, first of all, a lot of times parents are so concerned because their child is eating only a few foods in the first place. And so, you know, they might come in and say, hey, these are the five foods that they'll eat. Um, And I know that's difficult to accommodate too. A lot of times um, you just have to think a little bit further and say, this child is not trying to just uh, only eat these foods. A lot of times it's a deeper issue like sensory processing disorder or autism. It's not that they can just choose. Some kids are are tricking you, but a lot of kids, uh, they can't just choose to switch over to an easier diet or accept new foods. There's really a lot more going on there. So just having a little bit of empathy too with the parents who are just trying to make it work and trying to get their kid to at least eat something. But at the same time, there is a lot of evidence out there that certain chemicals and dyes like red dyes uh, can be harmful or uh, you know, especially hard for kids on the spectrum to either detox or to process in their bodies and cause 
you know, ADHD like symptoms. So a lot of times we need to avoid those because this population is just especially impacted by those. I've seen some students that, or some children, this is probably more from my public health days, that will not eat some foods of a certain color, whether it's natural or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it comes down to like sensory uh, processing and that, or some kids who don't have sensory processing will do that too. But I actually did my thesis on food selectivity and children with autism and nutrient intake. And we saw that a lot of kids who had uh, a pickiness around the colors of their food, they would not have sufficient vitamin A. And vitamin A, we know, is this orangey, yellow color. And a lot of kids don't want to eat foods that are that bright color. And so a lot of kids would be avoiding that just because of the way it looks, like carrots, for example. So yeah, it can be really interesting. I think some of the people that feed the children would worry that if they give a child such a limited diet, that it's going to do them harm. So what Mm -hmm. typically is probably going on behind the scenes at home to fill in those gaps? Because if the parent comes in with a diet order, obviously the child is under a physician's care. What else Mm -hmm. is typically done to rule out the possibility of deficiencies? Mm-hmm. It's, you always need to have a dietitian on your side to make sure because it's easy to just say you need to go on a gluten-free diet or a dairy-free diet, but that might be all the kid is eating. And so it's really important to have a dietitian on your side making sure that you're getting the right nutrients and that you're hitting all the food groups. And I like to say to my clients a lot of times, I want to add before we subtract. So if your child is only eating five foods and there are you know, four out of the five of them are bread and the other one is milk, a gluten-free, casein-free diet is probably not going to be the best option for them at this time. We need to add new foods to the diet before we can just completely strip them away. Uh, and so, I mean, a lot of parents just have a lot of hope in these diets that they will just make this huge difference. And a lot of times they do. They don't always. I actually had just got off the phone with a client who put her child on a dairy-free diet, and it made such an extreme difference that they're actually having to redo her OT evaluation because she'd made such progress in the past like six weeks. So they're having to completely redo her OT. It it really can make a difference and you just have to go person by person because what makes a difference in one person doesn't always make a difference in the other. Would you recommend so that people feel comfortable and I mean, the worker and the parents, would you just recommend that people ask for more details? If you're concerned about this diet order being vague, how do you mm-hmm. recommend people go forward when they feel unsure about what's in front of them? So basically, our obligation is to fill the diet order to the best of our ability. And sometimes you maybe still worry about the child, but you don't want to overstep asking for details. So if someone forwards it to me in my district, I feel like it is within my scope to ask if the parent is supplementing their diet Mm -hmm. somehow. Some people are on supplemental formulas. But how would you recommend that a non-clinical person move forward in a situation like that? It's so touchy. Yeah, because you don't want to overstep, but at the same time, you have genuine concern for the child and you want to make sure that they're 
you know, getting the right nutrients. I, I think it's all in the way that you ask. Even saying, hey, have you considered seeing a dietitian or there's a dietitian that specializes in autism? Maybe trying to give them some ideas. Oftentimes, parents just don't know that a dietitian for children with autism is, is even an option. So I think that it would be important to speak up, but just really thinking about the way that you say it and the way that you ask. They already have a lot going on. They know that their child is picky. They know that they're not just going to eat another food. So um, asking them, you know, why aren't you giving your child more food or why is, aren't they eating more food? You know, they're trying, but just coming at it in a way that I genuinely care about your child and I want to make sure that they're doing their very best and that they're getting the most nutrients they can. How can I help? You know, that sort of approach That's being amazing. accusational. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Try and be neutral. And I like the idea of offering resources so you don't need to launch an investigation you can just offer resources and I really think most children if you need any additional resources to get the same access to education that your peers have there should already be a plan in place for you and if there isn't one you can reach out to your 504 coordinator and see what is going on with that and if uh, nutrition could be present if the child has any restrictions that relate to their diet. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Is there anything else you would like to stress or communicate to people who maybe are thinking for the first time about how autism could affect diet? Yeah, I think because we know that there's a big impact from the diet to the gut and then the gut to the brain. We just really need to think about how are we feeding the brain and are we just feeding it sugar? Are we just feeding it simple carbohydrates? Your child is only eating just a few select foods. And now is the time to actually start getting the help and the therapy that could help expand their diet. So seeing a dietitian, seeing a feeding therapist, there are specialized feeding therapists out there that are either speech pathologists or occupational therapists that can really help with feeding. A lot of times the school system, I know that that's kind of um, a gray area, whether or not the school system would help with feeding or not. So I think it just depends per district. You might correct me if I'm wrong. It seems to be sometimes like it's school by school, you get together with the other adults that will be helping make sure the student gets everything they need. And sometimes the nurse is the one who will be responsible for something. Sometimes it'll be the cafeteria. It doesn't seem totally clear, like there's a set standard who should do what you just have to make sure there's a plan and it's going to get done. Okay, well, for maybe a parent, who could be listening to this or even it's a therapist or somebody within the school, if their child isn't getting direct feeding therapy to help expand their diet or isn't working with a dietitian, it could be good to refer out and give them those resources mm-hmm. so that they could just be knowledgeable about that. I have a lot of um, resources on my website and some blogs that are really helpful. It's autismdietitian.com and you're welcome to send them to my site. And there are plenty of things there that they can get some free resources to and I do one-on-one consults with clients across the U.S. over telehealth. So, yeah, if that's something that you think would be good for one of your students or for your child, just reach out to me and I'd be happy to talk to you more about it. But there really aren't very many dietitians specializing in autism. And so finding one in your area can be really hard. So just making sure you're relying on a dietitian, not just any nutritionist. You need to make sure that they're credentialed and that 
you know where you're getting your nutrition advice. But <laughs> And one of the things that I think is unique to the field um, of dietetics versus maybe just someone who says they're a nutritionist is if you are a dietitian, you're constantly being reminded to stay in your lane. Just because you're an RD doesn't mean you are a specialist in all areas. And there are plenty mm-hmm. of times that someone may come to you with a condition that you know you would best serve that potential patient or client by referring them to a specialist. Like, of course, um, dietitians will move to different specialties over their career. But as you do that, you don't just show up to work one day and you're like, oh, I'm ready for renal. I'm 100% ready. I just came from school nutrition, but get out of my way. I'm ready (laughs) to hit the floor without any training. That's not a thing. And I feel like other people Mm -hmm. maybe are little overly confident about serving people outside of their niche. And you don't really find that with licensed professionals. Like you can't get your Mm -hmm. GP to tell you anything once you have a specific condition that there's a specialist for. All they will do is send you to someone else. You can forget it. It doesn't matter if they're pretty confident that they know what it is. They're going to send you to a specialist. And that really is for our protection as a consumer. So I think that's Mm -hmm. something we don't think about all the time. Uh, But isn't it nice to know that if you go to someone who has a license and they think they know, they're not going to wing it. They're going to send you to someone who definitely knows. Oh, yeah. I refer out all the time yeah. and tell people I for your health I'm not you know diabetes isn't my area of specialty uh, or you know geriatrics that's not my area of specialty you need to really see somebody who could better serve you and I don't feel like I could do that appropriately so I completely agree yeah. and I think that's that's really neat yeah I think it's virtually impossible to keep up with the research in every little area no. of nutrition, right? <laughs> so I I feel like I have a general idea about what's going on in other areas, but not enough to practice because I'm always mm-hmm. focused on what's going on in school nutrition. So that's why I'm so glad to have specialists that I can have on the show to talk to us a little bit deeper about the things that come across our desk that we haven't had a chance to really study lately. So I definitely want to put the um, studies that you mentioned in the show notes Mm -hmm. for people who want to do extra reading or who just want to have it on hand as a reference. You mentioned your website. Is there any place else that you create content online where we can keep up with you? Yeah. Yeah. Facebook is the best. I feel like most because I work with mostly uh, moms who have children with autism most of them I find on Facebook. So I'm pretty active there. I'm posting almost every day. And so definitely find me on there. I also have an Instagram, but I'm not um, as active on the Autism Dietitian Instagram page. So I would definitely say Facebook is the best place to do it. I also have an email list. So if you go to my website, you'll see where you can sign up for um, my email list. Perfect. I'll definitely put those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you found that content as useful as I did. If if you need access to any of the resources that Britain referenced, don't worry, they are in the show notes. Just visit schoolnutritiondietitian.com slash podcast, and you can find all of the show notes there. This episode was sponsored in part by Stitcher Premium. If you listen to podcasts anywhere near as much as I do, you're going to love Stitcher Premium. They have ad-free content 
and they have all of the shows that you love from Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, which is one of my favorites, to Science Rules with Bill Nye. To get access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, and comedy albums, just visit stitcher.com premium and use School Nutrition for one free month of access. Alright everybody, here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't wanna miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. Whoop.